Alright, let's get started. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 12. Uh, uh, we'll pick up where we left off last week. Last week we saw um, Saul uh, do his first assertive act as king over Israel, uh, becoming king indeed. We saw he had been made king privately by Samuel, and then he was made king in a public selection ceremony. And then last week we saw how he is still on the farm, not doing very kingly things, until uh, Nahash, the eye-plucking Ammonite, um, came... Well, he was. <laughs> uh, came and posed this threat to the town of Jabesh-Gilead on the eastern side of the Jordan. Um, Saul rallied Israel together, unified the nation, and they went out in battle. And the chapter ended last week um, with Saul being once again renewed in a public ceremony as king over Israel. So uh, chapter 12 um, shifts a little. Um, For chapter 12, the main action and uh, narrative shifts back to Samuel. And Saul recedes into the background. We'll see him present in chapter 12, but never referred to his name. He's there in his official capacity as king, but he's not the central figure. So let me pick up our reading in 1 Samuel, starting in chapter 12, verse 1. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice and all you have said to me, and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord And before his anointed, whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. They said, you have not defrauded us, or oppressed us, or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that you have found you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness, who appointed Moses and Aaron, and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still, that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned, because we have forsaken the Lord, and have served the Baals and Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies, that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerobabel, and Barak, and Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, 
and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. And now, behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if, you, if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you will be swept away, both you and your king. Let's pray. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, we do come this day to worship you and to hear you speak to us from your word. Indeed, your scriptures are about your continuing relationship with your people. And time after time we read how uh, we turned away from you. That those who proclaim your name shifted our allegiance to vain and empty things. That we shifted the attention away from you, O God, and turned it to ourselves. But as this passage reminds us, you are a God who pursues his people. That you have entered into a covenant relationship with your people and that even when they are unfaithful to the terms of that covenant, you still remember them and you still seek for that people to follow you with all their heart. Lord God, instruct us um, from this, these words of Samuel today that we would be a people who wouldn't turn aside after empty things but would follow you with all our heart. Just as Samuel proclaimed to the people that day, we ask that your Holy Spirit would proclaim to our minds and hearts this day 
as we study your word. Give us ears that we may hear. Give us eyes that we may see your word. Give us bodies that might do it. But most of all, plant it deep in our hearts. Through the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So for the third time, Samuel addresses the people uh, on the issue of selecting a king and how what a how unpleasing it was to God uh, for this demand. But he starts a little differently this time in this address. Uh, why is Samuel raising his personal integrity as a judge now? Uh, or in other words, um, here we have the judge Samuel initiating a prosecution against himself. Why now at this moment raise his his own um, integrity. What do you think? this moment we see him saying look I, you've known me since I was a child and through my entire career uh, I've been blameless have I ever once used the position of authority you've given me against you or for my own selfish gain yeah so we have a contrast to what's gone before him or Yeah, he's getting them to declare at the beginning of the ceremony that, look, we're witness, we're witness before God, and you're anointed, you're blameless. Um, He's establishing his own innocence in this demand for a king. His sons, um, and it's interesting, he actually, uh, he says, behold, my sons are with you. Um, Yeah, and we were introduced to his sons earlier, and um, they did take a bribe, and then they they did defraud the people. So, um, uh, you know, he's hinting to that, I think. (laughs) But he didn't, and I think that's the main thing he's trying to emphasize, Um, especially since he's he's initiating... uh, uh, I mean, and the language here is very, it's very much the language of a trial. Um, this is kind of formal accusatory language, calling for witnesses, um, asking for people to testify to certain things. This is, this is a courtroom kind of uh, ceremony that we've initiated. And as he initiates the ceremony, he's starting with himself and establishing the fact uh, that he himself has been innocent in his rule over Israel so that this demand for a king isn't coming out of his own faults as a judge Tim
Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's this transition from um, from Samuel's rule as a judge to Saul. I don't like um, uh, the the title in the ESV, uh, the, the cart Bibles we have, Samuel's Farewell Address, because Samuel's not going away. And this is certainly not the last word we're going to hear from Samuel. Um, and at the end of the chapter, he tells the people, look, I'm... It's not like I'm going to cease praying for you, uh, that I'm going to cease to instruct you in the Word of God. But it's very much, as Tim's pointing to, this transition in rule. Um, that he is going to recede in terms of being a ruler over Israel, and now the king is going to be the ruler. And notice, um, notice Saul's place in this. Where do we see Saul in this passage? He's referred to a couple times. What ways does the passage refer to Saul? He's a witness. He's God's anointed. Um, so he, you know, establishing his um, position uh, as as the one God has anointed, and he's a witness. And who else is a witness? God. So our two witnesses for this uh, event are God and Saul. I mean, if you're looking for some public statement of the authority and power that the king has in Israel, that's a pretty um, dramatic uh, proclamation of, of Saul's position. He and God are the witnesses uh, that the people are testifying to. Um, they're the ones... So it's God and God's now anointed representative before the people, Saul. And that's a pretty, I mean, if we're looking for um, this being a, a changeover, that's a pretty, pretty dramatic uh, uh, visual statement to make before the people. So he's, um, he's establishing his blamelessness. And part of it is, and you all have touched on all these, he is um, establishing that it's, it was his personal leadership was not responsible for Israel's call for the king. Um, he's, he even says, look, I've been obedient to you even to the fact that I made you a king. Um, he's establishing that he... Uh, He's acting out of an upright position of judge in the coming proceedings and not out of some vain, petty, uh, you know, y'all deposed of God's reign and therefore you deposed of my reign and therefore, you know, I'm going to use my position as prosecutor before God to lay all these charges before you. He's, he's trying to do away with those kinds of motives. Uh, as he is about to... Um, you know, once again, bring charges against the people for this way they have broken covenant with God in this desire for a king. And it's also interesting, he's waited until this moment. Here the king is now firmly established in both public proclamation and in deed. So now that Saul is established in his rule, now he's raising the issue of how the people have have broken faith with God. Um, I, I found that really interesting. You know, even though the people are going to be tried for their sinful devo- desire for wanting a king, 
The king that they demanded is playing a role in the proceedings against them. And that, I mean, it's, it's, again, this strange relationship. On the one hand, the people, the way people expressed a desire for a king is sinful. Yet on the other hand, the king is in God's plan. And he's told Samuel, give them a king. And now he's using the king as his witness against the people. other questions about first five verses or things that strike you? So Samuel starts this, uh, this public ceremony off um, getting the people to witness to his own um, innocence. So now that the people have witnessed to that, Samuel then goes into um, uh, a covenant trial. And covenant ceremonies, whether initiating them or Um, examining their violation always involve a type of historical prologue. And here we have have a recounting of the history of the relationship between God and these people. So what are some of the things um, in verses uh, 6 through um, 13 uh, does Samuel recount in this history? What are some of the aspects of this history that Samuel uh, calls to mind. So he's trying to describe what the relationship between the people and God has been. What are some of the elements of that relationship that he chooses to look at? Yeah, very much as we often see with um, post-Exodus covenants, it starts with uh, this Exodus event. But notice the Exodus event um, is compacted. Often that's one of the larger sections, the description of how God uh, rescued people from Egypt and brought them to the land. But he deals with that in pretty much a verse. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought you your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. So he reduces that part of the history to one verse. And usually that's a a longer piece. But still there. So he starts with the Exodus. What else strikes you about this this passage uh, in the history that Samuel's recounting? Yeah, notice the pattern. That's emerging. You know, Israel goes to Egypt. The Egyptians oppress them. Their fathers cried out, the Lord sent Moses. And then he comes to this period of the judges. They forgot the Lord. He sold them into the hands of, and then he names um, various enemies who fought against him. They cried out. And the Lord responded by sending uh, a series of judges to deliver them. So we see a pattern here emerging. Um, uh, oppression, crying out, God sends a, a deliverer to rescue them. Um, the people then uh, are restored. They fall away. They cry out. God sends, um, God hears them. He sends a deliverer. He rescues them. So how does the pattern shift in the present moment? So we've got this sort of the historic past, you know, the Exodus past. The judges passed, and now he's getting to the immediate past. 
How is the immediate past different from those first stories? Yeah, we don't get the they cried out to God anymore. Um, they say, and, and it, again, it's, this no is an emphatic no. No! They don't cry out to God. They say, no, we want a king. Uh, it, so, even though, and, and notice um, how Samuel names people. You know, it's not that God has been acting, uh, you know, because earlier we saw, you know, we want some, a person to go for us. We're tired of God leading us into battle. But, you know, Samuel's noting. He had, you had Moses and Aaron. You had Jephthah, um, Drew, Drubbable, Barak. He names himself. Um, you know, God has given you leaders to deliver you. But this pattern of God sending to deliver is no longer good, was good enough for you. And you said no. Instead of crying out to God, um, you chose to rebel and say no. And notice how um, this passage, so last week Nahash sort of just showed up on the scene and sort of sparked sort of the immediate uh, action of, of um, Saul. Here it sort of makes it seem like the, uh, the issue with um, Nahash had been going on for a longer period of time. And that's part of what actually provoked the people to ask for a king. So the people, instead of crying out to God, they say, No, we want a king. And look what God does. Even though they say, No, a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold, the king you've chosen for whom you've asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. The people violated their relationship with God. But God was still faithful to them and gave them a king. They were faithless. God was faithful. In uh, verse, um, let's see, where is it? All right, verse 16. So here we've got all the people assembled. Um, Samuel has, has established his innocence in this trial. He's now laid the charges against the people. And then he says this, Now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. What is the great thing that the Lord is going to do before their eyes? What's he talking about? So, everybody's ready. All gathered. God's going to do something great before them. What's the great thing? <laughs> Why would it not be a good thing, Doug? Yeah. So here we have this um, this sign uh, that's that's about to be performed, and it's it's a supernatural action. It's May and June, as when the wheat harvest is in uh, Palestine. Uh, it, it usually is the beginning of the dry season. So it would be very unusual for a heavy rainstorm to take place at this moment. So it's supernaturally unusual, and it's potentially destructive. Uh, a thunder, 
a thunderous rainstorm is not what you want in the middle of your wheat harvest. And it's a very visual reminder that their daily bread comes from God. I mean, they're prepared for the wheat harvest. They're prepared for things as normal. And God is saying, look, I can, I can cut down the wheat harvest right now. If you, if you don't want to follow me, that's, that's fine. <laughs> um, you know, if you think you can go completely solo, good luck with that. It's, and it's, it's just weird. Um, there's really a lot of interesting debate on whether, as Doug was saying, is this a, is this a positive sign at the initiation of a covenant, uh, Israel's covenant king, or is it a negative sign judging Israel for past covenant sins? And it's, you know, there's a little both involved. And to give this, you know, very visual, um, uh, you know, show. (laughs) Thunder and lightning, rain on a day that it shouldn't be thundering and raining. Uh, You know, it's a dramatic show of God's power. And look how the people react. Uh, uh, You know, the people uh, greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. So if this was a message-intending event, the people, message received. But there's an interesting, um, uh, this sort of struck me as I was going through this this week. In verse 14 and verse 24, the people are enjoined to fear the Lord and serve Him. In verse 20, Samuel tells the people, do not fear. Which is it? To fear or not to fear? That is the question. Okay. Okay, so one aspect of fear um, talks about you know what kind of attitude or, or uh, reverence we should be approaching God with. So what's our other kind of fear? So there are two kinds. So that's one kind. Fear one. What's fear two? Yeah, you have this. uh, One is talking about fear of the... um, very much fear of the circumstances they're finding themselves. And the other is more of, you know, what Doug's saying, the sort of relationship kind of, of fear. And notice how the fear in verse 14 and 24 is connected to servants and obedience. So, I mean, it's one thing to be afraid of God and then go along your merry way and do whatever you want. 
Um, it's another thing to fear God and turn to God in service. Um, it's, it's sort of like um, sorrow for sin. It's one thing to be, to be sorry that you're caught. It's another thing to be really sorry. Um, so I think fear sort of works on the same kind of principle. It's one, it's one thing to be fearful of the exact circumstances you're being, you find yourself. In this case, the threat of destruction. And it's another thing to have this um, uh, relationship that that has this kind of um, realizing one's position in this relationship that God's king, not me, uh, or not the king that God has set over us, God's still in control, and that that initiates a response of service and obedience to that God. It's a way that fearing God lessens fear of everything else uh, because of the relationship. The confidence that um, is given us because of our trust and knowledge of the God um, who, who drives away this kind of servile fear, this reactionary fear. And look how the the people respond. Um, You know, they say, all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask ourselves a king. It's the first time the people acknowledge that this demand that they had made of Samuel and God was sinful. They finally see it from God's perspective. They finally um, see that the demand for the king involved a rejection of God. They finally understand their sin. They're still going to have a king. Um, And again, I think that's part of the the timing of this. Um, It's not that they're not going to have the king... But he wants them a realization that the way they asked for a king, the way they demanded a king, was sinful and involved a rejection of of him. And that their only hope going forward is their relationship with him, not this king, who again is sitting right here. And Samuel, again, refers to him throughout. Look, now you've got a king. Literally, sitting right up here, walking before you. You can choose to follow God, and things will go well for you. Or you can choose to turn away toward empty things, and both you and your king will be swept away. But they are the fear 
Yeah, it's God, um, even in this, uh, this pronouncement of judgment, uh, the fact that um, God is still in pursuit of this people. I mean, that is the amazing thing. Here they're getting a pronouncement of judgment, and the emphasis is on the steadfast love of God and uh, the continued service of God's prophet on their behalf. Um, which again is why I don't like this uh, this sort of Samuel's farewell address because he says at the end, I am not going to cease from doing all the things I've been doing, praying for you, teaching you what is right and good, how to walk in God's ways. He's 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 ceasing this kind of uh, judicial responsibility, but he's still going to be. God's prophet. The word of God is still going to be among Israel. It's still going to be frequent in Israel. To think of those words that um, accompanied uh, um, Saul, or Samuel's the initiation of Samuel's uh, prophetic career. The word of God went from being rare to being something present in the presence of God's prophet. Um, that presence of God's word among His people is going to continue. It's not ceasing. And yet, I think it may be significant that here you had Samuel say repeatedly, you should not ask for a king. You don't want a king. The king is going to do all this bad stuff to you. You want a king. Finally now, people say, you don't want a king. People say, you shouldn't want a king. But they don't say anything away. They don't say, we'll go back to something. Samuel doesn't say, now that you've repented, we will take the king away and we will go back to the different It's still this transition. He's got them to acknowledge um, the wrongness of their request for a king. But at the same time, the king's here and the monarchy's not going anywhere. The future instructions that are given are for the people and their king. Um, The king is sitting there listening to all these words of, of instruction and testimony. It's as much an address to Saul as it is for the people. It's established now. This king's not going anywhere. At least not for another 15 chapters. But to think, and also to think, um, I want us to, to see the, the, the redemptive aspect of this, or, and the gracious aspect, especially at the end of this passage. I mean, if we think about what's the purpose of monarchy going to be in Israel, 
and you know we read through Kings and Chronicles and it's a rogues gallery of leaders. There's a good one here and now to sort of punctuate what a king should look like, but for the most part, these are uh, this is not <laughs> a healthy um, a healthy leadership structure. Uh, but it's this experience of having a king that gets the people to long once again for the kingship of God. Uh, and I, I think that's, as we think about the theological implications of, of this king language, that God was their king before they had a king, God's going to be their king after they have a king. And we have that same royal language talked about in, in terms of Jesus. That finally, through Jesus, we're going to have someone on the throne who is God's king. Who is king and God. Uh, it's, it's the way the history... Um, it, you know, We get this recounting backward, but I think there's also looking forward. And we see all those sort of gracious words. For the Lord will not forsake His people for His great namesakes because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. It's not a history of the people's faithfulness, a history of the people's turning toward God. It's a history of God's action on their behalf. That is what makes this covenant lasting and fruitful. Not the people's uh, faithful, um, faithful obedience to the stipulations of the covenant. And that God, through his prophet, continues to pursue the people. Um, you know, Samuel, the Lord, I, I, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Serve the Lord with all your heart. Does that language sound familiar? I see nodding. <laughs> so we have this um, this really interesting um, transition passage um, that's sitting here, moving Israel from a period of judges, which is why I think Samuel's historical prelude emphasize uh, God's repeated um, deliverance of the people under these judges to now the establishing of a king. God's anointed representative. A person who sits witness over the people alongside God in this case, but who is also being instructed in the, ser- in the sermon, if we want to call it that, in this address of Samuel to the people, knowing that if the people or he break the or violate the terms of this covenant, they're going to get swept away. Anything else on this passage, George? Very different from the way that he can do what glory is by ourselves. 
Yeah, it's a good Presbyterian first shorter catechism question <laughs> for us. Because we really do see that um, God's emphasis, uh, emphasis here is on this relationship um, that will bring Him glory. And it's going to bring Him glory, um, you know, that it's going to bring glory to Him. It's, you know, it's the way um, election doesn't, uh, doesn't glorify the elect. God says there's nothing among you among as a people that you aren't the most powerful people, you aren't the strongest of people, um, you aren't the most holiest of people, but I still chose you. I mean, that doesn't, you know, you're horrible, but I pick you. <laughs> that doesn't elevate um, the people. It elevates um, uh, God's sovereignty and the fact that he's setting his unchanging love upon them, not that... Uh, they're um, they're strong or steadfast. It's God's strength and glory being shown in this relationship. Yeah, and it's going to be interesting because next week, um, so we're moving to the commercial stage of Sunday school. Um, So next week, um, well, how how to say this uh, without like, without like, spoiler alert. Um, So next week, you know, we're going to see um, the end of Saul's kingdom. Um, You know, so we've got Saul's kingdom established. the end of judgeship, and then, boom, <laughs> Saul's out. Um, and God already starting the process of his next king. Um, but you're, uh, this emphasis that God is sovereign over this promise. He brought the king into the world, in Bill Cosby's world, I can take you out. <laughs> Yeah, we have this contrast between, again, this, um, uh, you know, tremendous celebration, uh, this renewal of Saul's kingship, and now we move into this this judgment, um, the clouds hanging over them. Uh, it's it's not going to be all roses and tea and easy going. Um, there there's trouble on the horizon. Yeah. 
And especially since he's mentioned the Exodus twice in this chapter. That, you know, this is the God who appointed Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of the land of Egypt. Um, when Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord. And the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt. So twice he's, he's brought up the issue of uh, the Exodus um, and all the mighty acts of power involved in bringing the people out. Yeah, not. And especially for the the prophet of God. Um, The prophet is charged with making intercession for... You know, again, we often think of prophecy, we talked about this last year in terms of minor prophets, um, as sort of God's mouthpiece. But the prophet is really standing between the people and, and God. The prophet's in the middle and... You know, is sort of the negotiator between the two. So the prophet's receiving God's words um, to the people, but then the prophet turns around and then pleads to God on behalf of the people. And so Samuel is saying, I'm not going to stop doing that. Um, I might want to. <laughs> I really want to. Um, but I'm not. I'm going to continue to plead on your behalf. And what's interesting, he's going to continue to plead before God, not just on the people's behalf, but on Saul's behalf. Um, uh, Even after uh, um, God rejects Saul, Samuel is still going to make intercession for Saul. Uh, And I think that's really part of, of his duty. And for him not to do his duty in this regard would be sin. It's the way, again, we talked about last year, that we're called to be prophets. We're called to bring God's word to the world around us. And then, in turn, we're also turned to bring the world's concerns and put them before God. Um, We are in between God and and the world. And we testify to the world on God's behalf, but also bring intercession for the world before the throne of grace. All right, um, that's good point on for us to close. So let me uh, uh, end us with a word of prayer.
Almighty God, we do uh, worship and praise You and thank You for um, the history of Your relationship with Your people. Lord God, so often uh, we can jump into the position of, of judge. That we can say, boy, those uh, foolish Israelites, how inconstant they were, how silly they were that they turned after vain and empty things. Yet the point of your scriptures is to emphasize that we too are like them. That we should see ourselves in this position and how we so often turn aside to follow other things that are ultimately worthless. But you are a God who pursues us. As the New Testament says, it's not because we first loved you, but because you first loved us. And you demonstrated that love for us by sending your Son, Jesus Christ. The perfect prophet, the perfect priest, and the perfect king. To rule, to make intercession for us, to speak your word uh, to us. To make sacrifice for us. That we who are alienated from God might stand in your holy presence. What an amazing gospel. What an amazing history of your steadfast, enduring love. Help us respond to that love uh, with joy as in the coming hour we turn to worship you and especially to worship your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.